Good day and welcome to the New Asian Century, the podcast where we discuss the course of West Asia and Iran. I'm your host, Arash. Last episode, we had Zahra on the show. She was an Iranian nurse. And with her help, we were given some insights into how Iran's healthcare is coping with the coronavirus. We talked about the propaganda campaign against Iran surrounding COVID-19, the closing gap in Iran's public and private healthcare, equipment shortages, and rapid testing kits, among, among many other things. And since COVID-19 still dominates the discourse and is the subject of interest for many, we're going to stay on that course for the time being. My guest today is Ali Mohebbi. He's an Iranian economist from Tehran who's now frequently abroad for business. I'd like to thank you, Ali, for joining us and for uh, this time and effort to do the, the second installment. Uh, welcome. Hi, Arash. Thank you for having me on your show. Thanks, Thanks for being here. Uh, Iran's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, led by Javad Zarif, has started making it more vocal that the sanctions regime hindered Iran's capacity to effectively contain the coronavirus. After more than half a century, Iran has made public appeals to the International Monetary Fund for a $5 billion rapid loan, which has already been dismissed by key players on the IMF board. At the same time, some Western governments have gone on the offensive to claim Iran as an oil-rich country with vast resources and financial assets and it doesn't really need any support to contain the crisis. And what I'm hoping is that you can help us uh, make better sense of what these sanctions and what the sanctions regime really entail from an operational point of view. So where are the real impediments? I think we all get it by now that Iran is under a stringent sanctions regime by the US, but what's unclear to many of us is where those sanctions are being implemented. Uh, and, and so, Sanctions are almost synonymous with Iran, and the term is thrown around as something that appears to be self-evident, but really isn't for most people. I've selected seven areas that I'd like to know more about with you, Ali, and I'm hoping you could shed some light as we discuss each of them. Uh, yes, uh, as you said, U.S. sanctions have been continuously a uh, present major element in U.S. and Iran relationship for the last four decades. It's not a uh, recent phenomena. It's it's as old as Iran's Islamic Revolution. Uh, in different times, uh, they presented different justifications for the sanctions. For example, uh, to for example, in recent years, it's been to force Iran to comply uh, with their demands on restriction restricting uh, Iran's uh, nuclear program or uh, curbing uh, the capaci uh, capacities, capabilities, uh, anything related to that sense. Regarding uh, IMF um, loan and Iran's request for uh, access to uh, IMF uh, rapid fund for coronavirus, uh, there is, it's, not, it's no surprise that they rejected. Uh, after all, these international organizations have been always under influence of U.S. government. U.S. government has always maintained um, a direct influence over these uh, institutions. Um, right, right. Yes, Iran uh, is an oil-rich country. Iran has a lot of uh, resources, but in recent, uh, in recent years, since uh, Obama uh, administration formed uh, these uh, um, sanctions, especially the secondary sanctions. Mm -hmm. And after reimposition of those uh, sanctions by Trump administration, it's been really hard for Iran 
to actually enjoy its um, vast resources. Uh, I mean, whether these resources, whether it's natural resources such as oil and gas, or whether it's assets uh, frozen outside the country and very hard to use them. The sanctions right. uh, target uh, almost every aspect of Iranian economy and therefore Iranian people's lives. Right, and th this is something that Javad Zarif has also had to make very clear uh, even through uh, Twitter, is that Iran is not asking for handouts. Iran is not asking for free help. Iran is a very endowed country with many resources. It just needs the United States or it wants the United States not to interfere with Iran's capacity to export its goods and services and to have a flourishing economy with other countries. Indeed. Um, indeed, as you said, that uh, it's not just about uh, asking for, it's not just about sanctions, it's about uh, intimidation, threatening, uh, blackmailing. Um, uh, virtually every uh, government or every institution or entity that uh, dares to uh, engage in legal, I emphasize legal, uh, activities uh, regarding Iran. Uh, they, uh, they made this very hard and very costly even before the official uh, reimposition of the sanctions. Um, they uh, openly would go and uh, threaten, the different, threaten different governments or entities or central banks that uh, if you continue doing business with Iran, uh, you are gonna be target of US secondary sanction. And uh, that actually made a lot of Iran, a lot of countries friendly to Iran to actually start rethinking their relationship. Right, right. We'll get to that in a, in a bit. I think we have a couple of questions that actually touch on that subject. We're currently in a COVID-19 world with uh, the sanctions regime apparently playing somewhat of a role within Iran's medical community. Could you tell us a bit about how these medical facilities are having trouble? Uh, Iran has a um, kind of developed uh, infrastructure when it comes to producing and manufacturing uh, its needs. Uh, the Iran, Iran produces over the uh, 90%, some say 97% mm -hmm. of uh, what it needs. Um, but uh, the problem, the problem is when uh, Iranian producers and manufacturers, uh, they, uh, most of the times, they need their raw materials and their supply chain to be, uh, to be active uh, from different countries. They need to provide their raw materials so they can produce. That's, the, that's one of the problems. The second These raw problem, materials, what you're saying, are not found necessarily in Iran. Uh, the raw material is, uh, in, when, you are pro, uh, when you are trying to get your raw material from other countries, it's one of the two scenarios. Either you don't have it at home, either it's, it's much more expensive to make it at home. So uh, basically to end up uh, making your uh, final product more affordable, 
you would depend on imported raw material. That's when you, uh, uh, you would need the supply chain uh, to be uh, established. So when we talk about this supply chain, what kind of countries are we talking about? Do you have any insights about that? What, which countries are now uh, impeding Iran's capacity to, to, to have a, a functioning value chain with the medical facilities and, and medical sector now being targeted? Iran, um, actually it used to get most of its raw material uh, from countries such as China, India, uh, or um, from in the in the Western Hemisphere, it would be Germany or Switzerland. Um, regard, um, I mean, um, considering that uh, these countries usually um, maintained, a, let's say, less. Uh, I don't know. Should I say friendlier or less hostile relationship mm-hmm. with uh, Iranian government right. and Iranian businesses as well? So, for example, when uh, you have China and India, and uh, you want to do business with them, for example. And then uh, American governments, for example, it is the case, this was the case with India. Uh, they actually threatened Indian government and Indian central bank that you have to comply with uh, U.S. sanctions against Iran. Otherwise, your, your banks will be at risk. So. Uh, they start making restrictions on uh, the bank accounts made by Iranian businesses, Iranian, especially Iranian government. They, they shut down a lot of bank accounts. So uh, just imagine how harder it suddenly becomes for you as an Iranian um, like provider or supplier of uh, medical equipment or uh, um, let's say those raw materials that uh, your factory needs. Uh, How hard it suddenly becomes for you to continue the business as usual. Then uh, Mm. this is the case with with countries that actually are considered friendly countries. Uh, Now, when we are talking about European countries, the story is actually a bit more complicated. And just to be clear, um, there really doesn't seem to be a distinction between an Iranian government uh, a civil servant or a diplomat uh, that has a bank account in India or someone who has a genuine business uh, in the pharmaceutical industry and that they're all part of the sanctions regime. It's not targeted sanctions as the U.S. might usually claim it is. Exactly. It's sometimes, it's sometimes uh, many Iranian, let's say, student, a young student studying in another country goes to the bank and says, I want to open a bank account. And then as soon as they see the passport, they say, sorry, you are under sanction and we cannot uh, provide you with our service. They might apologize, but that doesn't make any change in the, uh, in the irony of the situation. The, U- the US administration claims that uh, these uh, sanctions um, do, do not include the medications or drugs or equipment, um, especially during the corona crisis. But uh, as a matter of fact, uh, they, they have uh, literally blocked every path that Iran could access to, to the providers of such uh, 
goods and uh, necessities. Uh, after all, Iran doesn't need their help because it seems they need help more than us. But mm. uh, it would be good if they would actually uh, show their honesty by not blocking Iran to access its own assets and resources to help its people who are actually right now the most vulnerable group that are affected by these sanctions. Uh, I'd like to go through some other points where the sanctions regime might be a significant impediment. I remember reading an article in the Scientist magazine where an Iranian uh, psych psychiatric expert, uh, Ahun Zadeh, explained that he wasn't allowed to publish his work in a scientific journal because he's Iranian. And I can imagine this also becoming a problem when Iran's medical community is seeking uh, scientific articles or access to scientific articles from the US and Europe. What has been the experience on that so far? Well, yes, um, when, they, uh, uh, when they put a blockade on Iran, just like they target every aspect of your, uh, uh, every aspect of your country's activities, that also includes the uh, science and education aspect. Um, the example you mentioned, there are many examples like that, but one that I would like to mention, by the way, is that the recent uh, example of the, the doctor that um, traveled to US and uh, he was arrested there. And uh, as, the, as the reason that they arrested him, uh, they said that um, sometimes before, prior to that, uh, two students brought him some um, samples need, uh, needed for his uh, field of science and experiment. And uh, since that violated the U.S. sanctions, now this man is considered a criminal in U.S. They arrested him and later, through a deal between Iran and America, there was an exchange swap of prisoners and he was free. Yes. But it can go that far. It can go that far that you as a scientist, as a researcher of anything that not, that's not necessarily a problematic field. You could be a doctor who is studying on cells and mm. they could actually uh, first uh, stop cooperating with you. Okay, your research is about how to improve the quality of life for humans. And they say, it doesn't matter, we cannot cooperate with you. And that would uh, actually deprive the Iranian, uh, the Iranian professors, researchers, it would deprive them from the latest development developments of their fields. Mm -hmm. Also, um, the same goes for like uh, depriving them access to uh, the latest journals of different uh, science fields, scientific fields, or. Uh, they don't give them access to publish actually their researches to get uh, noticed, to get recognized for their achievements in the same uh, fields. Right. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's the unfortunate reality that is um, the politics are actually now uh, present in every field. 
Yeah, we, we spoke a bit about the, uh, the, the doing business abroad and the in the pharmaceutical industry. So people can't open up bank accounts and these are not targeted sanctions. So individual business businesses in the pharmaceutical industry, medical facilities who can't have access, but also the doctors and the medical uh, staff that have to deal with scientific journals and articles and have to obtain knowledge in order to fight the, the crisis currently in place, but also you know, any other uh, virus in the future that, you know, the, the, the knowledge and the scientific area of expertise is being denied. Uh, I'd also like to talk a bit about the non-governmental organizations in this context. Iran has hundreds of NGOs, non-governmental organizations, working within its borders, including many NGOs involved in humanitarian or medical related areas. And at this stage, do these NGOs have the financial and economic freedom to exchange goods and services with their partners or their supply chain? How does, how does that work? Uh, the, the U.S. sanctions, as, as we talked about it, they are indiscriminatory. They target every, every single uh, citizen of Iran, mm -hmm. regardless of uh, their uh, affiliation with the government regardless of uh, uh, are you a simple student or a civil servant, are you a diplomat or are you just a random guy who happen to be, happens to be Iranian? They target everybody. And when they are targeting the businesses or transactions or relationships between Iran and the rest of the world, the same, the same, uh, the same um, procedure applies. So um, let's say you are an uh, you are a non-governmental organization. You want to provide um, you want to provide. Let's say you have some donations from your fellow citizens, and you want to purchase some um, goods and materials or medicines or drugs that you cannot find in Iran for certain uh, sicknesses. That um, let's say those drugs are present only in certain countries. You cannot. So you cannot, for example, have your transaction because your uh, intention is good. You cannot have your transaction because you are non-governmental. You are as sanctioned as everybody else. Right, right, right. And is there any example that you can give us on, on how this is uh, played out for a non-governmental organization, for example? Uh, I don't, um, last year, uh, there were some, there were some floods and earthquakes in Iran, and some uh, some uh, Iranians who live out of outside Iran, they made some campaigns and they uh, collected some monies. They wanted to send them to Iran, uh, but it was uh, blocked because of American sanctions. Um, these are these examples are many like. Okay, even if you, as an Iranian NGO, if you want to send some money to um, some producer outside Iran to um, to put an order to send you some products, to medicine, equipment, uh, it's gonna be very hard. It's gonna be very. Con it's not impossible, but it's gonna be so much time-consuming, and it's gonna be um, so much more expensive. After more than half a century, Iran for the first time requested an IMF loan of 5 billion US dollars. 
Uh, apparently, the, the IMF had not yet issued a definitive, definitive answer, but the general sentiment is that this will also be rejected. Could you tell us a bit about the reasoning behind the IMF loan and why that took place? Uh, the IMF is uh, just like uh, the other international organizations, is under the under direct influence of U.S. government. They are almost uh, uh, they are almost entirely dependent on the policies and decisions of the U.S. government, and they uh, they hold no they have no independence uh, regarding what U.S. government dictates them. It really didn't surprise me, and it really doesn't surprise me. Uh, when an international organization makes a biased uh, political decision regarding Iran, a discriminatory decision regarding Iran, uh, it's always been that way uh, during the last four decades. So uh, regarding IMF, uh, I, don't, I don't see any light at the end of that tunnel. <laughs> it's, it's um, uh, I mean, after all, one of the points, one of the unfortunate points that uh, these people try to make with the sanctions is to increase the, the human cost of, uh, let's say, not following their dictate, uh, policies. So um, we might get surprised that, hey, why now that it is a humanitarian crisis, why the American government uh, doesn't lift the sanctions, at least temporarily, until this uh, crisis passes? Well, um, many times their sanctions created crisis and they didn't mind. Uh, let's not forget the humanitarian crisis caused by the U.S. sanctions in Iraq. Uh, hundreds of thousands, some say over a million Iraqis died due to shortages of food and medicine. Right. That was a real humanitarian crisis. And they didn't mind. Uh, they didn't stop the sanctions because of the catastrophic consequences. Why should they now? Even now, why should they now come and give funds and helps for this crisis? I don't see a reason. Uh, you, you bring a very good point, Ali, that the IMF um, is influenced by the United States. And many people, just to clarify, uh, this goes uh, back to World War II. Before World, right before World War II ended, um, the IMF and World Bank were established at Bretton Woods. And as a result of this, the IMF became the de facto lending institution in terms of macroeconomic stability. Now, what that means is that countries were given loans in order to stabilize their economies. And, um, but what this also entails is that the United States has, certain, has a certain role within the IMF uh, because it was the de facto victor of World War II. Uh, the United States doesn't have a majority control over the fund but it does have veto decisions over, uh, over decisions when 85% majority is required. The U.S. also has veto power over the IMF's managing director, who leads the funds and chairs executive board meetings. And he's, he's known to rarely go against U.S. demands. Um, and of course, we know from history that 
you know, once you have U.S. aligned policies as a government, when you vote on the U.N. Security Council as a temporary member, for example, or when you support the U.S. during the war on Afghanistan, or when you support the U.S. during the Cold War, you're more likely to get an IMF loan. And so the IMF is, as you say, in many ways, an extension of U.S. power. And that when we talk about humanitarian cat catastrophes, the IMF might have a rapid uh, loan instrument, but you know, it, it remains the question to what extent that rapid loan instrument, although in theory it might be for catastrophes and humanitarian in interventions, it really isn't about helping the poor in those countries. It has everything to do with the IMF wanting conditionality and control over a country's economic policies, at least, and preferably political policies through the U.S. Yes, indeed. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's not just about IMF. Most of, the, most of international organizations, the U.N. itself is the way that um, U.S. as the victor of World War and then Cold War is actually uh, the, has the last word in everything. And, mm, you cannot really make a decision that goes against U.S. policies. Uh, you cannot become director of any of these organizations unless you have the U.S. government's green light or blessing. And um, that's been, it's been that way uh, ever since. So uh, it's, it's, it's not a surprise when uh, such rejections or at least uh, silent reactions happen. Right, right. Uh, we, we talked about many different actors within the Iranian economy. Uh, key targets in the sanctions against Iran for decades have been both the Central Bank of Iran and many of the private banks operating inside the Islamic Republic. How do sanctions hinder their daily operations, especially if we relate this to the corona crisis? Well, um... The restrictions, the, these, uh, these, uh, these sanctions, the restrictions, uh, affect a, a target a wide range of every aspect of Iranian um, economy, business. It's like um, they have restrictions on banking, on shipping, on insurance, on ports, on trades, on commodities, on uh, energy, uh, I, I mean, on export and um, swap of energy. It's literally um, affecting everything that you could think about. So for example, in a world that um, a, lot of, a lot of trade is happening um, via, for example, um, banking system very easily um, in a time that you have LC, letter of credit in the time that you make many deals um, like the, like the, you have international insurance companies that handle the ship uh, insurance of cargoes and stuff then suddenly they come and say sorry we cannot insure your cargoes anymore your shipments anymore then you have the international uh, shipping companies do not provide you with their services anymore so what should you do? You should depend on alternatives. Then they also go to those alternatives and threaten them. They, what should you do? You should, I don't know, buy new ships, build new ships. I don't, um, 
all of this take time, even if you decide to do that. Uh, so this affects every aspect of Iranian economy and trade. Then about the, uh, then because of all of these restrictions, Iran actually needs to depend on the regional hubs because despite all of the Iran's geo uh, geostrategic location and um, um, it's very actually uh, suitable uh, suitable situation that could be actually a very um, big and prosperous regional hub but uh, Iran has been deprived has been deprived of that and instead it's been forced to rely on other regional hubs in the neighboring countries. Mm. So for example, when something like coronavirus happens that forces um, like the airliners to shut down and the, uh, even the cargo planes to shut down, since Iran's uh, direct connection in many cases is not established and it goes through places such as, let's say, uh, Dubai or um, let's say uh, I mean uh, ports in United Arab Emirates or Istanbul or uh, things like that then uh, when the when uh, the corona crisis happens for example and uh, all of this is stopped then you don't have a, uh, most of your lines are cut because you didn't have them established directly they were going through these hubs. Mm -hmm. Recently, it happened that um, WHO uh, wanted to send um, in during, um, I mean, uh, it was in, the, in this corona crisis, they wanted to send some kits, uh, test kits. And um, they, sent, they wanted to send it, but then due to uh, problems, uh, the, the, due to corona crisis, that uh, forced the United Arab Emirates to cut the um, cut the air routes uh, between uh, United Arab Emirates and Iran. Uh, they couldn't send the kits to Iran. And after some negotiations, uh, they finally did it through Baghdad. It was sent to Baghdad and then sent. And you know, in such crisis, that time matters a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, especially when you need to get some help immediately, then you are forced to go through all of these complications from logistical complications, in this case, to mm. uh, financial complications that we mentioned in previous questions. Right, right, absolutely. Well, let's stay with the banks for a moment because uh, to send money from a bank in one country uh, to a bank in another country, you'll need a messaging system that verifies transactions, for example. So we're now talking about the IT aspect of the sanctions. Historically, a comp company called SWIFT has been the de facto party con to conduct these operations for banks and, and government transactions around the world. And SWIFT stopped its Iran-related operations to comply with U the US sanctions regime. How is Iran dealing and coping with the sanctions on the areas of IT and in particular the SWIFT problem? Yes, the SWIFT, uh, uh, SWIFT is a cooperative society. Uh, after all, the, uh, the SWIFT stands for 
Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication. Mm. It's a society. It's a cooperative society. And it uh, operates under the Belgian law. And uh, when you are a cooperative, let's say, society, uh, it's like you are owned by the members. You know, the, uh, the members are the owners of this society. And uh, the first time that uh, America started pushing for Iran being removed uh, from the SWIFT, uh, after they made their sanctions, their three rounds of sanctions in the United Nations Security Council, it didn't. Um, for the fourth round, when they wanted to target Iran's banking system, they couldn't uh, collect the, they couldn't, um, let's say, uh, have the agreement of all the major players. So they decided to go for it unilaterally. Hmm. And um, first America uh, did the move uh, on putting sanction on Iranian banking system and financial system. And then they started putting pressure on European Union. And uh, they, uh, it, it escalated until they threatened to uh, sanction the SWIFT or uh, blacklist the SWIFT, something mm -hmm. like that. And finally, the European Union, they gathered and uh, decided to comply with the sanctions. And uh, the European Union, they made their sanction, their own set of sanctions against Iran too. And uh, the SWIFT, uh, despite it initially resisted the pressure, finally accepted to comply with European Union sanctions and uh, cut the access of Iranian banks and uh, financial institutions to the service. Mm -hmm. But after the agreement, uh, when uh, the sanctions were lifted, um, the SWIFT uh, reconnected the Iranian banks' uh, access to the service. The thing that happened recently is that uh, after Trump government uh, reimposed the sanctions, despite this time, the uh, despite this time, the European Union was actually taking some stance of we are against these sanctions and this is not uh, in line with our agreement and uh, all of those uh, all of the uh, statements they issued. Mm -hmm. uh, Despite the SWIFT is under the Belgian law and it's, uh, the headquarters is in Brussels, they actually complied, complied with the US sanctions and uh, announced that we are suspending the Iranian banks and institutions from the service. Just like that. Just and, like that. Uh, just like that. And uh, it didn't even take that much of pressure it was very much more smooth much more smoother this time uh, for this to be achieved by the u.s government so now the service is gone what should iran do well after uh, long years of being sanctioned one year one way or another iranians also have come up with their own ways of going around the sanctions after all even in the times, even in those few years that uh, in in, the, in that two, uh, two years, three years 
between, between the uh, ag nuclear agreement and the reimposition of the sanctions. In those three years, it wasn't really that much of a uh, blossom or boom either, mm. because uh, despite the uh, connection to the SWIFT was uh, actually, um, it was reconnected, uh, still by the, let's say, intimidation and uh, political pressure and the verbal threats of the US government, many banks and entities didn't feel safe exactly. to, re, uh, to, to restart their business and relationship with Iran. What you're so, saying is you can have a messaging system that c can work and the sanctions are there relieved, but once banks are simply uh, not working or co cooperating with Iran, then it, you know, there's, no real, uh, there's no real business anyway. There's no way yes, for Iran uh, to access. Yes. For example, let me give you this example. Let's say uh, we are talking right now um, via, let's say, phone. And then someone comes and cut the line, like telecom comes and cut the line. And we cannot talk anymore. Then tomorrow the sanctions are lifted and they reconnect our telephone line so we can make a call. But they come to you and say, if you pick the call, we are going to do so and so to you. Mm -hmm. You won't dare to pick my call. So after all, it's not a big different, big change for me. I still cannot call you. Yes. You get. Absolutely. So um, that was the case for, that, that for, for most of that three years. Iran actually managed to only make a um, relationship with some certain small scale uh, institutions, small merchant banks. Like, for example, the Deutsche Bank didn't restart its relationship with Iran during the post-nuclear deal. Uh, years until the reimposition of sanctions. Iran made, uh, Iran found some smaller merchant banks in or investment banks around the Europe and they were doing business through those lines. Now, Iran is back to the good old informal value transfer mm. uh, methods. And uh, we, are, we are doing it the old fashioned way. Yeah, Iran doing it. Iran is doing it that way, but um, and the U.S. is just going around and trying to chase the customers one by one. Of course, they mostly go after the big fishes, but uh, for now that's the for now that's the case. Right, right. Let's just stay on the subject of IT uh, and, and and finally covering the what happened after Swift. Uh, and especially after the nuclear uh, deal, if you will, uh, the P5 plus one. The European Union introduced an alternative way of conducting transaction um, after the P5 plus one and the sanctions being reinstated. The European Union introduced an alternative way of conducting transactions as a means of bypassing the American sanctions regime, calling it, uh, they called it INSTEX. What has been the experience with that system so far? And do you believe it's a viable alternative to conducting business with Western countries, in particular, the European Union? You know, I, I, it's not really. It's um, just, just, just the way we were talking about uh, organizations such as IMF or 
World Bank or these institutions, um, European Union uh, proved to be, unfortunately, uh, not being independent when it comes to having a say against US policies. Despite European Union was insisting uh, so much that we are for the deal and we are, uh, we will comply with the deal as long as Iran is complying with the deal, they actually allowed the SWIFT to cut the ties with Iran again. However, unlike the last time that European Union uh, sanctioned Iran, this time European Union did not sanction Iran and even opposed the sanctions against Iran. In Despite all of this, they allowed the SWIFT, which is under the European law, which is under the Belgian law, to cut the ties, cut the access of Iran to the system, mm. which, I, which I emphasize is a society, is a cooperative society. The members are right. the owners. So if you, as a member, have not committed any violation of the terms, you shouldn't be subject to ban. Do you get me? Mm -hmm. So um, they actually did that, which actually is a evidence of uh, total compliance with American um, dictations. Then the European Union told Iran that, okay, uh, don't worry that the SWIFT is cut. We will make an alternative. After long and long promises, discussions, and lip service, uh, they came up with this new system called INSTEX. They, um, the France, Germany, and Britain, they established this mechanism. It was supposed to be an alternative for Iran to do uh, virtually all the legitimate businesses that it wants to do which should have included selling the oil and getting access to the money for purchase of anything that is not illegal. But what happened was that um, it actually took them two years of just words and lip service about this uh, mechanism. Sometimes mm -hmm. they come and say, okay, it's closed. Then they come and say, okay, soon it will be operational. Then they came last year and said it finally became operational. Mm. But again, nothing happens. And uh, it Because there's no way right now for me to send money to Iran or for, there's no way exactly. for Iranians abroad to send money to Iran or vice versa, even with exactly. the Exactly. Let's, let's say your family wants to send you money or you want to send you, uh, money to your family to Iran. You go to, uh, your, go, just go to a European bank and say, I want to send money to Iran. They will say it's impossible. You say, okay, don't you have the Instex? <laughs> I don't think they will give any, any uh, welcoming so, answer to you. Has this been a positive step for any party within Iran with the Instex now being in place? Which parties are benefiting from this if ordinary people are not benefiting? The Instex is... Um, the Instex doesn't exist, in my opinion. It's it's for now. So far, it's been just a name, mm -hmm. um, and uh, Iranian people have not benefited 
from this uh, mechanism so far. Um, and we are, um, we are two years into reimposition of the sanctions. And uh, uh, we are two years into, it, into this now. And the Europeans have cut the SWIFT and still no alternative has come up for it. It was just a few days ago, maybe last week, that uh, they claimed that finally we have made one transaction but uh, <laughs> I, I still, I still cons uh, considering the history of this uh, relationship, I don't uh, really uh, trust that. I don't, I don't really think that it's a game changer or it's going to be something like groundbreaking or something. The Iranian government as well as the Iranian nation have learned through decades of long and bitter experience that at the end of the day, you can rely on no one but only on your own capabilities. Uh, the, the prospects seem to be quite negative when we talk about these different areas, Ali. We've, uh, we've covered what the sanctions regime means for the medical facilities and pharmaceutical parties, what it means uh, to medical staff and the scientific community, what it means for NGOs and the central banks, uh, the negative impact of Western institutions like the IMF, uh, the role of SWIFT and INSTEX, I personally hope that the viewers and the listeners have gotten a bit wiser about what exactly the U.S. is sanctioning in this cat and mouse game that seems to never end. And that the main argument here, or the main conclusion that one could draw is that countries and institutions are being intimidated and threatened, that the European Union and the IMF are in fact not reliable partners, and that eventually, at the very end, uh, civilians are the main victims. Uh, I'd like to thank my guest, Ali, uh, for coming here and spending some valuable time with us. Thank you for listening this time. I, I thank all the listeners as well for tuning in, and I hope to see you next week for a new podcast.